But right now, as we open God's word and consider the title, The Burning Bush, we are always in need of God's guidance from above. So bow your heads as I ask for the Lord to take these words and fill them with his spirit. Loving Father in heaven, I'm always encouraged when I stand because you told me to stand therefore, stand firm, stand with confidence, knowing that it is God who works in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And I pray, Lord, now as I commit my mind to your work, that the waiting congregation will commit their hearts and their ears and their minds to be the place where the message is absorbed and the Spirit of God has his way. Take this message now and give it the life that will bring glory and honor to you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It's amazing how we sometimes underestimate the power of light, the power of a single candle, the power of something that may be small, but also impactful when the surroundings are completely dark. It was in the early 1960s. I was a very young boy, and my dad was on his way home from work when New York City was hit with its first major blackout. He was on the train, the subway, underground, under the city streets of New York City. How would you like to be in a train underground when all the electricity in the city suddenly is shut down? He talked about that story and something he had with him had strongly impressed my life, even to this day. You would never catch my father without a flashlight. He always had a flashlight. Even as he walked around the house during the day, in his back pocket, he had a flashlight. There were days that he received a lot of ridicule. Why do you have a flashlight in your pocket in broad daylight? And he would respond, you never know when you're going to need it. <laughs> well, in this particular instance, his pattern worked out in his benefit and the benefit of all the other passengers that were locked in that car under the streets of New York City. When the train abruptly stopped in a pitch black tunnel and people did not know what had happened, he reached in his bag took out his flashlight, and began to light the way. He said they pried open the doors of the car that he was in, and they cautiously climbed down to the tracks, which were now no longer electrified, and he led a group of people, he didn't tell me how many, but he led them out of darkness, back to the subway platform, back up the steps to a darkened city. But if he did not have his flashlight, if he did not have that light, oh, how different the story would have been. 
And I thought about that story and I said, thank God that even in the darkest moments, the light of God can be found. And the reason why that's significant is we have arrived at one of the darkest times in human history. And based on the rancid societal environment and the unfolding of gloomy events, there is no indication that the world is going to become a brighter place. This is the hour that the people of God need to have the flashlight of God's character in their back pocket. Can you say amen? We must not be caught in the dark without the glory of God radiating and being reflected and revealed through our lives. When we think about our society, look at the news, look at the movies, look at the commercials. I've said that before, but I was shocked this week. My wife and I were sitting down watching a documentary and a commercial came on and I said, Lord, have mercy. And I had to turn away. It was so dark and so carnal. That's the kind of world we're living in today. The depravity of the human mind is no longer a mystery. Depravity is on full display and is being forced into our minds, into our ears, and into our eyes. The people of God in these last days have to make a wise decision about even the things that they expose their eyes to. But that's not where it ends. We also are dealing with the selfishness of the human heart that refuses to give its victims a reprieve. We live in a selfish society. The Apostle Paul says men will be lovers of themselves. That's this generation. And the world has become so unstable in character. It is as if they are rushing to overtake the generation of Noah's day. And what a generation it was. And just like the antediluvian world, soon this generation is going to be identified as that generation was. The Bible says thus about the generation of Noah's day. Genesis 6 and verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was, what's the next word? Was great in the earth. And this always boggles my mind. How could this happen? And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, how often? Continually. I, I wonder, how could that happen? How could people get to the place where they only are thinking evil continually? And then I think about social media. Then I think about how they are piping entertainment. You can carry your phone. You could be in a hole in the ground and watch television. They're wrapping the planet with satellites so that you can't even go camping on the top of a mountain to get away from television. They're seeking to make our thoughts only evil continually. That's why I say to parents, if your child has a phone, make sure that he or she does not take that phone to bed. In the midst of a declining generation, the question begs to be answered. Where will the world find an unblemished representation of Jesus? Where will the world find a representation of the character of God? 
Now you consider the world that you know, the society that you see, and you think to yourself, can it get any better? Well, as bad as I've just drawn a picture, I also have some good news today. Because the good news is, as bad as the world looks, heaven has not closed its books yet on society. Can you say amen? There's still room for somebody else to be saved. There is still room for somebody else to be added to the book of life. And Revelation and Isaiah, you see John the Revelator, Isaiah the prophet, and Paul the apostle gives us indicators that in the midst of this kind of society, the glory of God is still going to be revealed. Look at Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. A compelling directive from the island of Patmos. John says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Give what to him? Give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of waters. Praise God, even in this generation, God can still be worshipped as the creator of heaven and earth. This week, my wife and I were reading the book of Isaiah. And you may not know it, but Isaiah is a representation of the Bible. It is a book of 66 chapters. There are 66 books in the Bible. And Isaiah is broken down in a division that is identical to the way the Bible is broken down. The Old and New Testament are in some ways encapsulated in the book of Isaiah. And just talking about how men determined to do things that are against God's will. In our reading this week, we, we read where evil men were determined to overthrow God's plan. And God said, you can think what you want to think and do what you want to do, but it's not going to happen because I am God. Somebody ought to say amen. I'm paraphrasing. God said, you may do what you want to do and think what you want to think, plot as you want to plot, but I am God and it's not going to happen. God always has the last say. So John the Revelator is saying that in this generation, the glory of God is going to be revealed. And Isaiah the prophet chimes in also. In Isaiah 60 and verse 1, we read these encouraging words. His declaration, arise and shine. Read the rest with me. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen. Where? Upon you. God is saying in this dark hour of man's forebodings, God is allowing his glory to rise upon his people. Amen, somebody. So God is not left without a witness. And then the Apostle Paul goes ahead and, and says to us that the revelation of God's glory is connected to an undefeatable plan. In other words, no matter how difficult your suffering may be, let me say that again, no matter how difficult the suffering that you are called to bear may be, Paul is saying to us today, that even in the midst of your suffering, the glory of God is going to be revealed. Here it is, Romans 8 and verse 18. He says, in a beautiful way, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, what time? That's right here and right now. Are you going through something right now? Right here and right now. 
Paul is saying, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with, and get this, the glory which shall be revealed in us. He's saying you may be suffering. You may be going through trial. But he said, when you look at the suffering and you look at God's plan, you're going to look back one day and say that what I went through is not worthy to be compared with what I'm going through right now. Come on, you dead bunt. Say amen. What I went through on earth, I don't even think about it when I get to heaven. What I went through down here is not worthy to be compared with what we're going to go through up there. And here's the beautiful comparison. That's temporary. Eternity is eternal. God is saying, one day we're going to look back. And when somebody says, Tracy, how was it? Tracy's going to say, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't remember how beautiful the glory of God is going to be. We're going to look back one day. And when we are about to tell our story, Roger, about what the difficulties were, we're going to say, well, forget about it. It doesn't matter anymore. Amen. You see, when you're at a really good Thanksgiving dinner, you forget that two weeks ago you only had potato chips. <laughs> you forget the potato chips because you are sitting before a palatial outlay of foods of every description. Brethren, let me tell you today, you may be going through difficulty down here, but the day is going to come when you, when, when we... Walk through that pearly gate. And as we enter into the realm of unblemished per perfection, we are going to say, it was worth it. I am glad that I held on. And above the heads of that redeemed, perfected multitude, you are going to make eye contact with folk who gave you a hard time down here. And you're going to be able to say, we made it. Come on, somebody, help me out. We made it. Husbands and wives are going to say, I know we argued, but look at us now. You got to hold on because the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. You got to hold on, Luis. You got to hang in there, Diana. You got to, Guide your children to say, it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. Because the best is yet to come. But now let's take a left turn and come with me to a strange, barren, dry, and thirsty location. Sequestered in the plains of Midian stands an apparently abandoned bush as this man named Moses, entering the second trimester of his life, because his life had three parts. First part, the life of an abandoned child found by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the setting of wealth that had no limit, raised in palatial palaces. He lived in a society where what he wanted, he got. He lived in a setting where power was unhindered. He was a part of a family that said it and it happened. 
But now God took him from that and now has entered him into the second trimester of his life. And there he is as a shepherd surrounded by stinky sheep on a Midian plain being drawn to a tree that looks apparently abandoned, but there's something unusual about it. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1 introduces us to this strange but divine setting. The Bible says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert. I wonder, how could you find the back of the desert? <laughs> it's like, I know where the backyard is, but I never knew the desert had a back to it. To the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. When you think about the setting, there seems to be a silent but persistent power that was drawing Moses to this unfamiliar location. It was unknown to man, but it was chosen by God. It became known as the place where the infinite God revealed himself to finite man, where divinity of perfection was now speaking to a man who not too long before this, in anger, had murdered an Egyptian. But God had done such a good job cleaning up Moses' resume that when we mention Moses today, we don't think about a murderer. Am I right? <laughs> we think about a righteous man. We think about somebody that we'd love to be like. God can do amazing things with our past. God can take the record and expunge it and put us in society in a way that people remember us for what God made us, not the mess we made of ourselves. So here he is standing, persistently gazing at this tree that seems to be in an unusual place in an unusual condition, he had never seen this before. Look at verse 2 of Exodus chapter 3. And the angel of the Lord, and by the way, that phrase means Yahweh, the self-existent God, is who Moses is looking at. And the angel of the Lord, the self-existent God, appeared to him in a flame of fire. Our God is a consuming fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. You know why? Because God will never be consumed by his own righteousness. Because there is no righteousness apart from God's righteousness. And the righteousness of God is referred to as a burning flame a consuming fire. God will never be consumed by his creation. Nothing that God has made can replace God. Let's pause and make it very simple. God made fire. God controls what fire can do. Ask the Hebrew worthies. They'll tell you that God knows how to make fire a cool thing in a hot circumstance. Moses was captured by this extraordinary display, but it was not the burning bush that caught his attention. 
What caught his attention was the phenomena that the bush was not consumed. What a spectacle. I've seen forest fires. Matter of fact, I have a, a bunch of bushes on my lawn right now that I've had there since the, the, the winter came in and I have been waiting to set it on fire. But people have said to me, not yet, not yet, not yet. You might start a fire and burn down Thompsonville. When I, when I put that pile together, there were too many dry leaves. And then the rains came and they said, well, wait a little while. So I'm thinking to myself, I need to get Larry McLucas to do this because I have no idea of how to burn a pile of leaves safely. But there is Moses standing before bushes that are burning. This bush is not being consumed. And some have sought to explain this amazing phenomenon. You read in the Holman Bible Dictionary their attempt to explain what was taking place here. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, page 244. He writes, some attempts have been made to explain the phenomena by claiming that the bush had foliage of a brilliant fiery color or that its leaves reflected the sunlight in an unusual manner. It is best, however, to regard the burning bush or the burning of the bush as a unique act of God. Now, why is that important? When God does miraculous things, sometimes people tend to give credit where credit is not due. So they're saying that there's no way that the bush could have been burning unless the sun was reflecting off of its burnished leaves. Or somehow, maybe the context or the composition of this bush just, just looked brighter than all the other bushes. But I love the way that the Holman Bible Dictionary ends it. In other words, they're saying, why don't we just give God the glory for the glory that God alone can accomplish? And I know that's the case. Because God can take people that have absolutely no skills. God can take people that have absolutely no training and do amazing things through their lives. God can take people that have never done things before and make them proficient experts at accomplishing tasks that prior to that they didn't even pay attention to. That's God. That's what God can do in your life and in my life. Do I have any evidence of that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I remember my first sermon. When I was invited to preach in Florida, Central Florida, I wasn't even a pastor. It wasn't even in my mind. But I was invited at a small little church, a, a storefront Adventist church. Uh, matter of fact, in New York City. Thank you, honey. To preach my first sermon. And I look back on that particular Sabbath. And right next to my Bible, I had my written notes. And I had a stack of books that I was going to be reading throughout the sermon. And I look back on that and I said, that was so amateur. But God probably looked down from heaven and say, what, an, what a feeble human attempt to communicate my word. But I got plans for you. God saw in this little heart of mine a desire to communicate his word when I was just a teenager. And God said, I got plans for you. So God said, I'm going to get that bush. 
I'm going to burn the sin out of it. I'm going to keep it on fire until I come so I can burn up all the residue of sin. You ought to say amen too because that's what he's doing to you. That's why every now and then God plunges you back in the furnace. You, you wonder why you go through stuff? God's trying to ignite you to burn all that stuff out. Then I think of how God took that little young man, stuck him up in a mountain somewhere in Northern California, and then took him down from the mountain. See, Moses had a mountaintop experience, and so did we, honey. God put us in the mountains. Then he brought us down to the valley. And I look back on that, that journey of more than 40-something years, and I can only give God the glory because only God can take a seemingly worthless bush and ignite it for the glory of his name. There's something else about that burning bush that we ought to remember. The burning bush became the antitypical representation of how Jesus was going to appear to humanity. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, the unattractive of, uh, nature of that bush became a preview of how Jesus would be revealed. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 and 3, speaking of the coming Christ, the Bible says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of what kind of ground? Dry ground. This is a preview of Christ. He has no form of comeliness, meaning no attraction. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So much so, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When Jesus came, the Lord did not send Jesus on a white royal horse. Jesus entered the world through the back door of a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus came through as a God that was stepped down so that he can come into this world and not consume the world. The Lord brought the majesty of heaven into the world in the package of the flesh of a newborn babe. And the only ones that were there to admire him in his entrance was an ox and a donkey and some braying sheep. That's humility. You might say, where is Pastor John going with the sermon? You stay with me and you'll find out. Jesus, the glory that he had, the majesty that we will one day understand. Because every now and then when I hear the phrase, he received the adoration of angels. The only time I can somehow understand what that meant, April, was when I read Revelation 4 and 5, and the Bible says, and, and day and night, the angels bowed before him, singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now watch this. 24-7, every day, Throughout eternity, the angels are assigned to say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Now, why is that important? 
If we understood the gravity of the holiness of God, I believe that somewhere it would affect the way that we approach the word of God, the way that we pray, the way that we communicate the name of God. I think that somehow if we really could embrace in our finite understanding the glory of God in the way that the angels saw him before he stepped down to come into human flesh, it'll cause us to tremble. But we're going to get our chance one day. We're going to walk through the gates. Amen. And we're going to join the angels. That's why the Bible says every knee at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and earth will bow. And every tongue in the earth, in heaven and under the earth are going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Only then will we understand why Jesus came the way he did. In the book, Desire of Ages, Ellen White explains it this way. She says, God's glory was subdued and his majesty veiled that the weak vision of finite men might behold it. His glory was veiled. His greatness and majesty were hidden that he might draw near to sorrowful, tempted men. In other words, Jesus became like us. He came to identify with us so that we could identify with him. Praise God for that. Can you imagine a flaming fire walking into your house and saying, can I pray for you? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. He came and put on our flesh. But God used him to communicate to us that God understands us in the ordinary avenues of our lives. God understands us in the places that don't shine at the moments that seem dim. God understands us. God sees us in that broken down condition and God understands us because God begins with ordinary dried up bushes. But when he ignites those bushes, his glory shall be revealed. God used an ordinary bush to reveal an extraordinary God. But make no mistake about it. The simplicity of that bush does not equal a simple God. We serve an exclusive God. There is no God like the God we serve. Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9, he says it to us this way. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. And look at this. Are you ready for it? And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So when you pray, be encouraged. You're praying to the God for which there is nobody better than he. Nobody higher than he. Nobody more capable than he. Nobody who can provide your needs better than he. Nobody who can deliver you better than he can. Nobody who can forgive you better than he can. Nobody that can wash away your past better than he can. Do I need to keep going for an amen? Nobody that can transform your life better than he can. He's not the owner of J.C. Penney's. He's not the one that built the World Trade Center. He created the universe. That's our father. 
I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. You crippled Christians, when you get on your knees, remember that you are bowing before God who can make you stand up and keep you from falling. Somebody ought to say amen. That's my God. That's your God. That's our God. So when I preach sermons, I'm not talking about somebody that I know just ethereally or intellectually. I've had experiences with God. I've been at the places where I needed to be burned up. But instead of being burned up, God lit me up instead. Instead of being consumed, he repaired me. Instead of being thrown away, he refurbished me. And here I stand together today understanding what it's like to be consumed by a God who looks at us in an unworthy place and still allows his glory to be reflected through us. The church ought to say amen to that. You see, when Moses began to investigate the bush, the bush began to investigate Moses. <laughs> God's presence and majesty was in the bush. Moses was saying, and the bush was saying, as Moses looked at the bush, the bush looked at Moses. And I want to tell you what a situation it was. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. The Bible goes deeper into this analogy of this grand experience of Moses talking to the glorious God, talking to the eternal self-existent one. The Bible says in verse 3, then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, watch this. Not only was the bush burning, but the bush started talking. How's that for an afternoon walk? God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Now before the Bible says, and he said, here I am. But I'll be honest with you. Moses said, huh? Who was that? And I believe God said it again because he had to figure out from what direction Ian, the sound was coming because he's out there by himself and he's standing in front of a bush and he hears these phrases, the word Moses, Moses. I'm sure he looked around and say, who was that? And then all of a sudden, the Lord amplifies his voice, Moses. And he recognizes that the voice of God is coming from a shrub. When you speak for God, the voice of God is coming from you, you shrub. Amen. God can use a shrub to speak in his behalf. Ain't that right? We're shrubs. If Jesus can be a shrub, what makes you any better? If God can use a shrub, if God can use an unattractive bush to speak words of perfection to Moses, God can use us too. Praise God for that. There's something else I learned. And every now and then I get an epiphany, Terry. Every now and then the Lord says, I know you read that story 15 or 20 times, and you even saw the movie, uh, The Ten Commandments. And by the way, The Ten Commandments wrongly applied this. 
It made it look like the burning bush was in the mountain when Moses went to get the commandments. That's not the case. It was on the plain of Midian. So don't use movies to find out what the Bible teaches. But the timing of this incident of the burning bush is often overlooked because we wonder, okay, here's Moses in the second trimester of his ministry. He was in the palace. Now he's in the desert surrounded by a whole lot of sheep. The timing of it is often not considered, is often overlooked. You see, God had to take Moses, formerly raised in the Egyptian mansions, surrounded by power and wealth, and dial him down, chisel him down, get rid of his proud mind, get rid of his rich, arrogant position, let him know you don't have any money now, so I could use you now that you have no power. God had to get Moses ready for the fact that he was about to choose him to identify with slaves that were in bondage in Egypt. What was God doing? God was getting Moses ready for the people that he was about to minister to. God could not use him in his high-minded position in which he enjoyed the pleasures of the Egyptian dynasty. God had to break him down. I love the way that Ellen White brings us out in the book, Youth Instructor. This is a powerful analogy. And by the way, when I preach my sermon, my wife is reading, and she brought this to my attention. Thank you, honey. Ellen White says, Moses had received a thorough education in the court of the king of Egypt. He was qualified to be the honored general of armies and to engage in warfare with other nations. But although he was the king's recognized grandson with a prospective kingdom before him, and although he had enjoyed the highest educational advantages that Egypt could offer, get this, he was not qualified to engage directly in the work to which the Lord saw fit to call him. God had to break him down. She goes on to say, he was not fitted to take his place as the visible leader of a vast multitude. God had to break him down. Receiving from God instruction in regard to framing their laws and laying the foundation of their economy in a system of types and symbols. Listen to this. He could not lead the people of God through the rocky barren desert into the land of promise. He must first receive an education from heaven. Let me paraphrase all of that. And I want to say it in a way that you won't misunderstand me. Education is great. I admire people that hang in there to get that associates and bachelors and masters and PhD. God wants your doctor to be well informed. Right, Roger? When you stand before an eye doctor, you don't want him to tell you that he was a farmer last week and this is his first eye exam. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> right, Luis? 
Hey, Doc, give me your credentials. Well, last week I was a, a tree cutter, but this week I decided to try my hand at surgeries. In certain ways, you need, let me say that again, you need to be educated. Right? But I've always had a problem with the term masters of divinity. Because Jason, I always wondered how could frail humanity master divinity? I understand what that means. But what we're being told here is that education without God's direction is of no value when it comes to working in the field that God alone can qualify us for. God had to take Moses as highly educated as he was. God had to break him down and bring him to the place where he could understand that in the barren deserts of Midian, that's where God enrolled him in training to be a minister. There was so much more in this quotation. Servant of the Lord said, Moses was entered into the school of Christ in the plains of Midian. Only there would he receive his qualification to be an authorized minister in the work of the Lord in the plains of Midian, not in the universities of Egypt. And so when you get your degrees, don't ever forget that all the glory still belongs to God. When you get that education and your mind is filled with knowledge, don't forget to give God all the glory because if you went insane all of a sudden, all that education couldn't do you any good. Only God can keep that mind clear. I was speaking to a pastor's wife. My wife and I know who I'm speaking about. Uh, the the pastor is de uh, deceased now, Elder Larry Cavanis, in Northern California Conference. His wife was a psychologist. And she says when she went to school to take psychology, she recognized how worldly and how secular and how spiritualistic it was. So she says that for every textbook that I studied in university, I had to read another book. I had to read another Bible verse. I had to read another writing of Ellen White to keep my mind balanced. Because psychology in the way of the world is not psychology in the way of God. And she says, only God can keep your mind clear to deal with the unbalanced minds of society. Education has its place, but here's the way that Solomon said it. Here's the way that Solomon said it. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33, notice what he says. He said, the fear of the Lord is the what? Come on, talk to me. Is the what? instruction of wisdom. That's where it begins. Wisdom come from God. Can't find it in a book. And before honor is what? Humility. The Lord had to bring Moses down before he can lift Moses up. And we look back on his life today and we say, I would have loved to have been Moses. He didn't make it into the promised land, but he made it into heavenly Canaan. Amen. I always wonder about that. You know, people say, oh, I'm so sad that Moses didn't make it into Canaan. He died, was buried, and resurrected and taken to heaven. Now, which would you have preferred? Canaan or heaven? Jorge, my brother from another mother. Canaan or heaven? Heaven. That's what I would prefer. Heaven, any given day. I'm not going to get upset that I didn't get to Hawaii. If I, do, if I die on my way to Hawaii and God resurrects me and takes me to heaven, I'm good with that. 
I've heard pastors say he didn't make it to Canaan. And I want to stand up and say, but he made it to heaven. A special resurrection to make it very clear. You don't die and go to heaven. But God raised him up. And there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah, that God swept away in a chariot of fire. And Moses, that God resurrected and took to heaven, was a representation of the human race. Those who would never die in the form of Elijah. And Moses, those who would die and be resurrected. Right there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they met with God. They met with Jesus before he had faced the trials of the cross. But I look at that and I think to myself, if Jesus was willing to step down from eternal glory to save us, what makes Moses any different? God humbled Moses because Jesus was willing to be humbled even to the death of the cross. But when you think about this situation, God had to take 40 years. How many years did I say? It took God 40 years to get Moses to be an effective leader. 40 years. 40 years in Egypt. 40 years in the Midian wilderness as a shepherd. And then the next 40 years of his life was the high point of his ministry. God elevated him when he was 80 years old. Says, now you're ready. If you ain't 80, wait on. Wait on God. God's got to wait till you get older. I know what that means. Because as we're getting older, we still do foolish things. No amens necessary. So God knows when the right moment comes that God says, okay, she's been through enough or he needs to go through a little bit more so that he'll be ready to be a leader, an effective leader. God had to get Moses 40 years of humility before any honor being referred to as he led them out of Egypt would ever be added to Moses' resume. But now let's see what happened. Let's see what happened. It's difficult when you come from Egyptian aristocracy, remembering all the fragrances of the palaces and of the stores in the, in the Egyptian Beverly Hills and the downtown stores. When, you're, when your nostrils are coated with the smell of sheep excrement, you're thinking, how could I be special in God's sight? It doesn't smell like it. Look at verse 10 of Exodus chapter 3. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. The Lord is talking to Moses now from the bush. He's having a conversation with a bush. And the bush is doing all the talking. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now look at Moses' response. But Moses said to God, now he knows who's in that bush. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, let me talk to those of you that have a, a low self-evaluation of yourself. When God calls you to a task, when God calls you to accomplish something, 
He doesn't call you to accomplish something in your strength. He calls you to accomplish that very thing in his strength. The Apostle Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Moses made the mistake that many of us make when God calls us to a task. And I know that some of you are raised in situations where you felt I didn't have a voice in home. And I was when I spoke up, my parents said children should be seen and not heard. And I hardly had any voice when I was being raised. And that's why Moses said what he did in verse 11. Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? God looks for the who am I's to accomplish magnificent things. God looks for those that don't have any self-esteem. And that word esteem is not a great word to use, but God looks for those that, whose value of themselves is extremely low. And he says, Moses, let me make it very clear. I'm not sending you to Egypt on your own power. Look at verse 12. I'm not sending you to Egypt to use your eloquence of Egypt. But here's what I want to do for you. Look at verse 12 of Exodus chapter 3. He said, to, and he said, so he said, that's God speaking back to Moses. I, let's read this together. I will certainly be with you. What's that word? Certainly. Say that with me together. Certainly, when God chooses you for a task, the Lord is saying, I will certainly, honey, be with you. God does not say, can you do it, Ramona? He says, I know you can't do it. Moses is so unqualified in his speech that he sent Aaron to be the spokesperson. Moses probably stuttered like our president. What he means is, Pharaoh, would you let God's people go? Moses was disqualified. He couldn't even speak well. So he took Aaron with him until he got his act together. And Aaron wasn't great support because Aaron betrayed his brother when he went to get the Ten Commandments. But there was Moses as disqualified. We think of him as so together. But he wasn't that way. That's why he said, who am I? If you use that phrase, when God calls you, pause at that moment and say, I'm sorry, Lord. It's not who I am, but it's who you are that makes all the difference. Not who am I? God said to him, I will certainly be with you. Look at the rest of the text. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. God chooses the unassuming and he sends them. And this is what God says. He even forecasted, he even forecasted the victory. Before he even sent Moses, he even told him how it's going to work out. Wouldn't you love that? Before you do something, God says, Bonnie, here's how it's going to end up. And you walk in the room and nobody even noticed you're there. And when they finally notice you're there, they recognize this is the lady that God sent. <laughs> Who is she? But five months later, they say, I'm so glad he did send her. Amen, Bonnie. So don't think of yourself as unworthy. When God calls you, let me say this again because you're not grabbing it. When God calls us, don't look at yourself. Don't, look, don't say in the mirror, who am I? But get on your knees and say, 
Lord, I'm so glad I know who you are. I know that. I mean, I had those things. I had to get through that. When I was growing up in ministry, I was surrounded by guys with major degrees. The first church that God filed me down in was a church I was in. Everybody in there had more than one degree. One Sabbath, I was preaching with four conference presidents in the, in the pews. How would you like that for your first church? <laughs> Doctors and lawyers and teachers, that was the kind of congregation I had. People highly qualified. And here I am, not a piece of gray hair in sight for many more years to come. I'm highly enthusiastic, speaking at 400 miles an hour, throwing everything I can at the congregation. And they're sitting there like, look at that unqualified young man. But God said, give me about 20 more years. And I'm giving God the glory right now. Give me about 20 more years with that young man. Now hear me carefully. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm a child who didn't know his mother. I'm a child whose father's name wasn't even on the birth certificate. I was abandoned at a babysitter's house. That's why I identify with Moses, the youngest of three children. Moses at three months old was found in the Nile River. At three months old, I was found in the house of a babysitter who wondered what happened to my parents. Moses had an older brother and sister. I've got an older brother and sister. And God took me through my wilderness. And even though I don't feel like I'm all the way there, I don't stand here in my strength. I stand here in the strength of the Lord. But that's your story. That's our story. That's Jason Bradley's story. That's Jeff Dore's story. That's your story. God finds us in unusual places. And he starts developing us because he says, I got, I got a reason for you. That's, that's Greg and Jill's story. I look back when I used to call her Julie, but she's now the vice president. I look back when Greg was working on the truck in production, but God said, I've got some bushes that I'm going to burn, but I'm not going to consume them. I'm going to qualify them. See, God doesn't look for people that feel they can do it. God look for people that wake up in the morning and say, God, how did I get here? Who am I? And God said, I'll certainly be with you. And the job that I've called you to, you're going to see that my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, my strength is going to be made perfect. And I'm going to tell you how the story is going to end. And you will understand who I am when the children of Israel, multiple millions are standing behind you. Moses, you're going to look back and stutter and say, how, 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 how did God do that? That's our story. 
If you think you all that, you'll be in the wilderness of Midian for 40 more years. If you think God wants your degrees and needs your degrees, then you need, you need to have a conversation with a bush. But God finds us and does in us what causes us to wake up in the morning and ask ourselves the question, is that really my name on the door? Are people really saying to me, you changed my life? When I read this story again, I saw my journey. And I stand here today in the com complete humility of God and say, Father, if you can do that in Moses' life, I thank you for being willing to do that in my life, in my wife's life, and in your life. You see, friends, the Christian walk is not something that has to depend on the Christian. Christians that think success depends on them are denying the necessity of their connection with God. The Apostle John makes it so clear. Look what he says in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine. Come on together. I am the vine. You are the what? Branches. He who abides in me and I in him, what? Bears much fruit. For without me together, you can do nothing. Notice, he says, bear as much fruit. How does God take a barren tree and bring fruit out of that? Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Right, Donald? Right, Janelle? Only God can do that. Only God can take us and make our lives count in somebody's life. When I, there are some people that are so visible, but there are other people that are off the stage. And you don't see them, but God does. God can take the seemingly worthless bush and remind us that it is his divinity that makes a difference in our lives. It is his divinity that makes a difference in our lives. Don't ever get caught off guard thinking that what you look like is what God needs. Look at 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. Don't ever get caught off guard thinking that what you look like is what God is looking for. God has a different attitude than we do, friends. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. Notice what the Lord said about Saul, this great man. Here's what the Bible said to Samuel, the prophet. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. Why? Because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at what, my friends? The outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. This is, this is repeated all throughout Scripture. You have another, another example in Luke chapter 7, verse 24 to 26. Look at this one. Don't get yourself thinking that you've got to look the part for God to get you ready for the part. Look at this. Luke 7, verse 24 to 26. The Bible speaks about how God found a goat skin wearing locust eating outcast and made him an evangelist to precede Jesus. The words of God in Luke 7, verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. This is Jesus. Notice what he said. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Indeed, look what he said. 
Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But look at this. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet. He had on goat skins. He eat locust beans or locusts, the insects, and he had honey. God can use people not by the attraction of their external qualities, but by the beauty of a transformed heart. That's what God does. It's all throughout the scriptures. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 27 again. How the Lord looks at the heart. Character is the highest value, not external attraction. Notice what he says again of the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly. Where, friends? Outwardly. But inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. With God, character is higher than external appearances. And you know who knows that? The devil knows that. Look at Matthew 7 and verse 15. The devil knows that. That's why the Lord put this warning in there. The devil knows that we are people that are often swayed by what we see rather than what God sees. That's why the Lord put this caution in Matthew 7 and verse 15. He said, beware. What is that word? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But get this, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Don't get persuaded by what you see. Examine that person's heart by the word of God. And the Bible unmistakably says, by their fruits, you will know them. Who is that individual internally? Not what do they look like externally. But there is a qualifier. There's a qualifier because I don't want you to go away with the idea that you need to look humdrum to be a servant of God. Because when you come to God, when you come to Jesus, you may come broken down and worn out, but he never leaves us the way he finds us. Isaiah 48 and verse 10. Notice how the Bible talks about not just the power of forgiveness, but the miracle of transformation. Isaiah the prophet says it beautifully here. Isaiah 48 and verse 10. Notice the word of God. He says, behold, I have done what? Refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you how in the furnace of affliction. I remember when I joined the Heritage Singers. <laughs> this is something else. My wife can tell you. When I joined the Heritage Singers, I was so used to being in charge. I'd be on stage directing the group. And I remember Lucy May saying, oh, he wants to be the gr group director now. I thought it was Max Mace. <laughs> I had to learn to put my hand down and let his hand move. And when I went to California with my strong New York accent, I never knew I had an accent. But in California, they said, you have a strong New York accent. Get rid of your accent. Then Max Mace put me out on the stage. At the end of the concerts, he says, I want you to do the appeals. Huh? I want you to do the appeals. The appeals? Yeah, you do the appeals. And I practice 
what it meant to do an appeal on the stage with the heritage. See, I wasn't a pastor. I had no kind of training whatsoever to do, to do appeals, but I got my training on the road. Then he said, I want you to do the Bible studies. And every day in the group, in the bus, we had Bible studies every morning. I set up a Bible study schedule. We have group worship, then individual worship. God started seeing things take place in my life. I didn't see it, but the group nicknamed me pastor, spiritual leader. I didn't have theology in my future. I had no desire to be a pastor, but they said pastor, spiritual leader on the album from the heart. It's still there to this day. God saw a bush. God saw a bush. When I came back home after two years in the Heritage Singers, sitting in an office, my wife was the was the receptionist and I was working at a construction company and I was sitting at my desk in accounting. That was my background, accounting, working with papers and numbers. And she walked past my desk and said, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm not satisfied. This is not what God has called me to do. I want to be in the ministry. She said, let's pray about it. And we prayed and we prayed until we prayed on our knees. We prayed with our face to our bed. We only had one bed in an apartment with two rooms, we only had one bed, no furniture, no living room furniture, just one lazy boy recliner that we bought for $25. But God saw a bush and he was about to ignite that bush. See, I know what God can do in your life because it's my own testimony. Don't be dissatisfied with where you are because God is looking at you where you are, but he's also looking at you where he has plans to take you. And when I got that phone call to come to Northern California to start with Pastor Doug Batchelor in ministry, I was a quirky, disorganized, didn't know which way was up. I couldn't care less if you needed a visit. And Pastor Doug was patient with me. I was just a youth pastor at the time in Vallejo, California. And we had evangelistic series. And, but where was I? I was at home sleeping. Next morning, Doug said, we have to go do visits. I'll be up in a minute. <laughs> but he bore with me. Because he said he's just a bush. And when my 11 months were done with Pastor Doug, he said, what are you going to do next year? I said, I don't know, but I'm praying that God will do something with my wife and me in ministry. And Doug said to me, well, is any more money coming? I said, I don't know. He said, well, there's no more money coming. What are you going to do? I said, I'm praying for God to give us a church if he sees fit. And Doug said to me, if you think that that's going to happen after just 11 months in ministry with no education, it doesn't work that way. That's what he thought. But God had other plans. And he stuck us in the mountains of Northern California in an old church with old people. We had two ages. Everybody, everybody here had Geritol. Everybody here had baby's vitamins. There was no middle age group. And every now and then we look at that picture, that little tiny church in the mountains of Northern California. The church is so packed, you can shoot a shotgun and hit no one. That's what I mean, how empty it was. When we got there, it was empty room only. But when we left, 22 months later, it was standing room only. God found a bush that he could light on fire. And they said, you're going to give you two years in the mountains, but they cut it short by two months. And be encouraged, Ian. God's got a plan for your life. 
Be encouraged if you feel like you have no value. I'm telling you, God's got a different view than you have. They brought me down to the big church and God put me in a grinder. And for five and a half years, he let that church grind me fine. Trial and tribulation. Yes, I understand what the furnace of affliction is all about. But God said, you're just a bush. I'm not done with you yet. And he took me to the next church in Fairfield. I didn't even want to go back into pastoring. But he said, you're going to go where I tell you to go. My wife, he spoke through my wife and she said, are you now telling God what you want to do? And God used her to humble me. And I said, I'll go where you want me to go. And we ended up in Fairfield. When that church was thriving, breaking at the seams, God said, enough. I want you to go to the Midwest. Where? St. Louis. Who would trade California for St. Louis? <laughs> I said no four times, <laughs> three times. They said, don't say no anymore. Just come on out here. I, I said, okay, and it's at least a free trip to St. Louis, wherever that is. And we ended up in St. Louis. And God took us there for nine months, Will. And God said, that's not really where I want you to be. I want to stick you in a little town called Thompsonville. It's tiny, but that's where I want you to shine. It may seem obscure and off the beaten path, but there's a place for you there. And although you're going where there's only one way in town and one way out of town, don't worry about that because I got other plans for you. You see, we all end up here like bushes. But when we get planted and ignited by the glory of God, God never leaves us the way he finds us. To God be the glory, somebody. Say amen. You see, Ellen White makes it clear, God refines us. I'm winding up here, but I want you to stick with me. Councils for the Church, page 78. She says, the religion of Christ never degrades the receiver. It never makes him coarse or rough, discourteous or self-important, passionate or hard-hearted. On the contrary, listen to what she says, it refines the taste, sanctifies the judgment and purifies and ennobles the thoughts, bringing them into captivity. How? Into captivity to Christ. God's ideal for his children, and this is powerful, is higher than the highest human thought can reach. He has given in his holy law a transcript of his character. When you think that you've gone someplace Put your hand in the hand of God, and then he will begin to take you places. Somebody ought to say amen. Joe and Nancy, two Catholics, end up being the first principal in an Adventist school. Joe, a fireman, putting out fires in the hearts of people on a daily basis from his phone, bringing them to the foot of the cross every day. That's your story. God can take any of us and make us something magnificent. This ministry wouldn't go as far as it did if it wasn't for Moses Primo and the intellect that God gave him, the technological advanced understanding. God uses bushes and ignites us. Every one of us has a place. God found Brian. He was in a casino, but now he's making sure programming goes on 3ABN 24-7. That's what God does. That's what God does. God finds you and ignites your life. He makes a difference in your heart. So don't ever think of yourself as unworthy and irrelevant. 
You see, when I studied the burning bush, I found something that I want to end with. God gave me an epiphany. What is an epiphany? You ask, here it is, a sudden intuitive perception or an insight into reality or essential meaning of something unusual, something homely or commonplace, something that occurs with an experience. God initiates the simple and turns it into the profound. An epiphany, God showed me that there is a message in the burning bush. You see, the burning bush is an experience that God wants to make in our lives. The burning bush is anything but simple. The burning bush is anything but homely. The burning bush is anything but commonplace. What does that mean? You see, the most profound revelation of God's plan is revealed through the burning bush. Understand what I mean. How can God use something? How can God who is so profound choose a bush that is so common? How could a God that is so abundant select a bush that is so barren? How can the inadequate reflect the divine? How can the homely reveal the heavenly? That's your story and my story. The story of your life and mine is not that we have great heritage, but that we have a great God. Can you say amen? The sufficiency of your ministry and mine is not in your training, but in your transformation. Look at the last verse I have here for you. Look at what the Bible says. Oh, how powerful and how lovely God is to every one of us. Look at what he says through the Apostle Paul. He said, for you see your calling. Let's walk through this and milk it. For you see your calling, brethren. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 26 to 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. That's not who God calls. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Verse 28. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. Is God amazing? And he continues, and he continues, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You know what that's saying? God's not looking for the qualified, God's looking for the humble. God's not looking for those that think they got it all together. God's looking for those that are despised and pushed aside and seem to be foolish and seem to be without worth. But God is going to take that life and bring what seems to be nothing to the place where the only one that can glory, the only one that can be praised is God alone. You see, brethren, that's our story and that's your story. The Lord will appear to the world as the light of the world in us. How will the world know God? He is going to be reflected through us. How will they hear of his salvation? They're going to hear it through us. Through what? The burning bush. And we are that burning bush. Only God can take a barren tree and turn it into a fruitful life. Only God can take those who seem to be of no value and cause them to be consumed by his amazing glory. God wants to take us who are normal. God wants to take us from a barren tree 
to a burning bush. And listen as I close. I spent so many years. I spent so many years trying to avoid the fire. But I finally realized that God is calling me to embrace the fire. The fire that has refined me. The fire that has consumed whatever does not reveal Christ. The fire that has burned away everything that does not resemble Christ. So I understand what it was like for, for Moses to be standing in that unfamiliar place, the plain of Midian before a burning bush. That's how your journey begins. And so when you find your place, when you find yourself at that unfamiliar place, you are about to be confronted with a revelation, not only of who you are, but who you're going to be. What is your story? Jesus did not come to burn us up, but to light us up. Jesus did not come to consume us. He came to ignite us. Today, if you want to have an experience with a bush that can light you on fire and ignite yourself and, and empower you and qualify you and guide you and direct you and take your life to a place of greatness for his glory, would you stand with me this morning? Almighty God, everlasting Father. Sometimes the mirror in our home lies to us. It tells us that we have no value. It tells us that we are nothing but one mistake, one bad choice after another. And yet we hear a voice behind us, Moses, Moses. And then our journey begins. We begin from that unfamiliar place. The place that you have chosen. The place that you designated. We end up in an office that we know that we are not qualified to sit in. Behind a desk with responsibilities that would crush us. Had it not been for your sustaining grace. We sit before our computers. We sit before our program logs and we sit before our families. We sit together as husband and wife wondering, how is this going to work when we're just nothing but bushes? And Father, you reach down into those broken places of our lives. You reach down and sometimes you take us to the filing fields of Midian. You take us away from the things that cause us to boast and feel that we are all that. And then we look back like Jeff and his son, Patrick. We look back and we say, Father, we had no idea that you had such a plan for our lives. We look on the road that we're now traveling on. And we say, Lord, who else could have put us on this road? Who am I? Who am I? And then you say, you're my son. You're my daughter. 
I've always had these plans and these dreams for your life. And I want to now stand you before the world and through your burning bush, people can see a transformed life. People can see a redeemed person. People can see a forgiven individual and people can see a person transformed for the glory of God alone. So Lord, don't send us forth as broken vessels, but send us forth as people that recognize that in your sight, we are somebody. And thank you that we can only boast about that somebody because this is your glory. And we thank you and we praise you for that. And finally, Father, when the world sees us in you, when the world sees you in us, then and only then will they understand the unbroken connection. Christ in us is that hope of eternal glory. And we thank you in Jesus' holy and precious name. And God's people said, Amen.